This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, there are growing concerns that Russian forces could steal American arms sent to Ukraine, how the U.S. State Department plans to secure and track those weapons. And China's President Xi Jinping just started his third term, and with it, the communist leader may be shifting his focus. We look ahead to what that means for U.S. strategy. Then, the nation's libraries and museums are part of the fabric of American history, culture, and education. In 1996, Congress created an independent agency to provide federal support for, for those institutions. We talk to the director. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The State Department has released a new plan to ensure the nearly $18 billion in military aid America has sent to Ukraine doesn't end up in Russian hands. Elias Youssef is a research analyst with the Stimson Center's Conventional Defense Program. Elias, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Does the U.S. not have a way to track American weapons that are either sold or donated to foreign countries? Well, the United States does have a conventional program for tracking arms once they've been delivered to a foreign country. It's known as end-use monitoring. Uh, and it's meant to ensure that weapons are appropriately inventory, stockpiled, and accounted for. But those programs are designed to work in peacetime when we can have officials visiting warehouses and depots, checking serial numbers. It just doesn't work in the context of Ukraine where there are active hostilities going on. So what does the State Department's plan um, add to that oversight? Right. Well, the plan is, is essentially broken down into three parts. One, it's, it's meant to bolster the ability of Ukrainians and, and their uh, neighbors to account for those systems, to catalog them, to inventory them. Uh, the second bit is just to increase the robustness of border security and border management systems, customs and the like. And then the final bit is to enhance the ability of Ukrainian and neighboring law enforcement to detect, track, understand and interdict potential illicit weapons flows. So is there any evidence that illegal weapons diversion has already happened in Ukraine? For the most part, no. Uh, I, th I think the assessment generally is that the intensity of the, of the fighting and the demands of the front lines have kept most of those weapons uh, in service. And um, there just isn't the incentive structure yet to see those, uh, those weapons diverted. Now, that said, uh, as the conflict changes, that dynamic may also change. You know, there aren't any American troops, obviously, on the ground in Ukraine. How could we really know for sure what's happening with those weapons? Well, the answer is it's, it's very difficult. Um, at some stage, the hope would be that you have some officials who are able to actually inventory, catalog, do those serial number checks. But uh, for the short term, we really are depending on the Ukrainians and their commitment to keep these weapons um, in the right hands. And we should note that it's not just the Russians that could uh, get those weapons, but arms dealers could take them just to sell them. Yeah, absolutely. We are certainly concerned that these arms, given the scale and scope of the transfers, as you said, nearly $18 billion, even a little bit of leakage into the black market can be a really um, enduring security threat for the region and beyond. And hasn't that happened in other conflicts? Certainly. I think the U.S. has an unfortunate history of engaging in these very large military assistance efforts, only to find that those weapons end up in the wrong hands. You need to look no further than Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and elsewhere. Uh, where the U.S. has transferred arms and, and found that their adversaries end up having them. 
You know, one criticism of the State Department's plan is that it doesn't address small arms. Mm -hmm. Does that make a difference, and, and why doesn't it address those arms? Well, for me, that's actually a really important point. Um, we understand why there is a focus on these man pads, man portable air defense systems, and anti-armor systems, but for me, small arms are often uh, what is easiest to transport, easiest to smuggle, easiest to use, and poses a real threat to civilians um, and uh, to criminal organizations all over the world. So what's your overall assessment of the State Department's plan and their strategy for this issue? Well, I think it's, it's very promising. It's a good first step. I'm very glad to see that they've taken some of the concerns that have been raised by people like myself on this issue. Uh, I hope the State Department is willing to adapt and change its plan uh, based on changing conflict dynamics, diversion indicators, uh, and be able to be reflexive to what's happening on the ground. And as you said, I really do hope that some of this tends to focus on small arms because those can be especially dangerous. Do you think that the U.S. will be able to stop um, illegal weapons diversion in the future? I mean, or, or is this really an impossible task? Well, you know, arms uh, diversion is always a risk, even under the best of circumstances, and Ukraine clearly isn't in the best of circumstances. I think what matters is putting in place the most robust possible mitigation measures so that we are really uh, trying to undercut the harm that could come from this, from this military assistance effort. So, Elias, once um, weapons are stolen mm -hmm. or they end up in the wrong hands, mm -hmm. is there anything the U.S. can do to recover those weapons? It's really difficult. Once they end up in the wrong hands, recovery becomes uh, increasingly difficult, especially if they proliferate to other geographies. And so the uh, important steps should be taken ahead of time before those weapons reach the black market, including end-use monitoring and um, interdiction measures. And, you know, we've been talking about securing American weapons, mm -hmm. but what about weapons that are delivered by our allies? Mm -hmm. Do they have those safeguards in place to monitor their weapons? Because we certainly don't want them getting into the wrong hands either. Absolutely. The, the EU in particular is working on a plan that's meant to be similar or akin to the one that the United States has produced. Uh, the hope, of course, is that these plans are coordinating with one another, that the U.S. government is coordinating with the Defense Contact Group and its allies to ensure that uh, those measures are all integrated. And, you know, we've been talking about this possibility. When it does happen, and it has happened, of those weapons getting into the wrong hands, what's the impact? What do you see, especially on the civilian base? Oh, it can be, it can be really harmful, whether that means um, criminal organizations being able to operate more freely, um, sub-state armed groups being able to uh, improve their operations, become more powerful. Um, or terror activity. I mean, there's a, there's a history of things like man pads being used to target commercial airliners. So the risks to stability, security, and civilian harm can be quite severe. And we saw, uh, you know, just briefly in Afghanistan, once U.S. troops left, we saw what happens when American weapons get into the wrong hands. Yeah, absolutely. And that was probably one of the most severe cases of mass diversion um, in recent memory and really indicates the level of risk that we take, even with the best of intentions when we transfer arms. Well, Elias, I appreciate you coming in and your work on this uh, subject. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming next, Chinese President Xi Jinping has just started a third term. What that means for U.S. strategy. Stay with us. China's leader Xi Jinping broke precedent to take on a third term as the country's president on October 30th. With the start of his new term, Xi has a new slate of top leadership and renewed attention on Taiwan. Bradley Bowman is senior director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Brad, welcome. Well, uh, thank you very much. 
You know, some analysts are saying that Xi's new leadership appointments indicate a strategic shift from economic prosperity to technological and military dominance. Do you think that's the direction China's going? I do think that's the direction that China is going. I think they've been going that direction for a while now. What may be uh, uh, somewhat new here is just the, the speed with which they're progressing that direction and the explicit nature of what they're doing. In some ways, uh, you know, Xi's uh, extraordinary third term that he's now obtained uh, is both a serious problem and a blessing for the United States. It's a serious problem, I'd say, because they've explicitly uh, refused to rule out the use of military force against Taiwan to establish authoritarian control over the, uh, of the free people on that island. So that's a major problem and is fundamentally destabilizing, as the, the Biden administration has said. That's the bad news. The good news, I, from an American perspective, I would say, is that they're not hiding their cards anymore. You know, there, there long was kind of an approach in Beijing where they wanted to kind of to um, hide their strength and, and bide time. Well, those days are long gone now, both in their words and their actions. It's clear uh, from my from where I, my vantage point, what Beijing means what they say, uh, and that's the essence of a threat. When someone has the intent and they're building the capability, that's that's a powerful combination that we have to take seriously. And so, um, I, I think following uh, Xi's uh, establishment of his new third term, we have to assume that a, a military aggression in Taiwan is more likely than ever, and it could happen sooner than we want. I, I do want to ask you about Taiwan, but first I want to ask you about space, because yes. recently the, the Defense Department named China's space activity a threat in, in that latest uh, national defense strategy. What do you see as the threat China's space program poses to the U.S.? You know, it's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it, because as many of your viewers will know, um, space is more important than ever to not only our, our economy and, and, and our quality of life, but to our security and to our military operations. You know, we depend on space for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. We depend on space for uh, missile defense warning. We depend on it for command, control, and communications, and increasingly even for conventional military operations in other domains back here within the atmosphere. Um, so we know that. Uh, Beijing knows that. And, uh, and we essentially have, I, what I, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, is, is some form of a space race going on with Beijing. Uh, they're certainly racing, and, and we appear to be waking up and racing ourselves. And when you look at the testimony earlier this year of the leaders of the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Space Force, you know, the, the, uh, the testimony there is, I, I'd say, a bit of a wake-up call for many Americans who may not be paying full attention to this. Um, they said, quote, the PRC is researching, developing, fielding the space and counter space systems needed to defeat the joint force. So they're integrating their capabilities to use space to target maritime air and land forces and project power through space. So, I mean, that's that's pretty, you know, for as far as DC testimony documents go, that's that's not pulling any punches. And so if you look at the news just in the last few days, regarding the new Chinese space station, right? A lot of that, you know, hey, learning how to grow seeds and operate in cold environments, that's great. You know, exploration of space, wonderful. But we know from America's history in space is that there are significant military advantages to having capabilities in space. And it's almost impossible to, uh, to, to extricate the two in terms of commercial interests and national security interests. And so in short, China is building the capability to seize the high ground and to 
uh, take away our ability to rely on space in a contingency uh, and while simultaneously trying to constrain our efforts to protect our interests in space. And that should be a deep concern for anyone paying attention. And Brad, I do want to go back to Taiwan because in a recent speech, she talked about the importance of reunifying uh, China and Taiwan, but he didn't give a timeline. So is this a renewed push for reunification or is he just being more open about it? I, yeah, no, it's a great question. I think they're being more explicit than ever. This is, of course, a longstanding goal, right? Uh, from an American perspective, though, our attitude is codified in the Taiwan Relations Act and, and, and memos and, and other, and other uh, communiques is that we think the conflict should be resolved peacefully, not by force. And, and Beijing is refusing to take force off the table, and that's fundamentally destabilizing. And we saw the massive military exercises after Speaker Pelosi's visit. And so the question for the United States is, you know, do we know exactly was, when is it going to happen? Is it next year? Is it five years from now? No one knows for sure, but I would I would suspect that Xi's under tremendous pressure to try to quote unquote resolve this crisis before the end of his third term. So that means five years. I mean, do the math: 2022, 2027, and that uh, is in harmony with much of the testimony we're getting from the Department of Defense. Bottom line is, we don't know for sure, and what we do now will affect whether that is delayed or whether it ever happens. And as we've learned from Ukraine, deterring conflict is a heck of a lot less expensive than dealing with something that you could have avoided in the first place. And, and very briefly, Brad, you know, American and Chinese officials are working to set up an in-person meeting between uh, Presidents Biden and Xi. What would uh, you expect to come out of that meeting? You know, uh, meetings depend on the, the personalities and goals of the leaders, but I think more than anything, they often reflect the power balances between the two countries. And when I look at the actions of the United States, I see a growing and concerning gap between Washington's words and actions. We are not nearly as prepared to, for deterring and defeating aggression in the Taiwan Strait as Washington suggests and as many Americans believe. And there's steps we need to be taking now to prevent that conflict and should it come, God forbid, that uh, our, our service members can be successful and return home to their families. All right, Brad, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we talked to the Institute of Museum and Library Services Director about a new committee to support the arts and humanities. We'll be right back. On September 30th, the president issued an executive order establishing a committee on the arts and the humanities. It sits within the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Crosby Kemper is the director of that institute, which is the primary source of federal support for the nation's libraries and museums. Crosby, welcome to the program. It's so great to be here, Mimi. Thank you. You know, the president's executive order um, said that the arts, the humanities, museums, and libraries are essential to the democracy of the nation. How? So one of the phrases that he used uh, in the, the executive order is cultural vitality. And I think that exists in libraries and museums. It exists uh, and supported by uh, the, the NEA and the NEH, the National Endowments, who are also a part of this, uh, and, and the IMLS. And it's really about, it, it, from the point of view of the, the president and this order, uh, it, it's, it's about the civic trust that libraries and museums have, uh, that the arts and humanities have, and, and the unity that they build uh, for, uh, for the country, which we obviously need at this time. And uh, we're very excited about the president's order and, and 
and, and the, the attention to, to the arts and humanities that uh, it betokens. So it's, the, it's called the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities. Right. First tell us how it's set up and who's on it. So uh, the, uh, this has existed since President Reagan uh, started it, and uh, uh, the, the president will appoint shortly 25 board members and two uh, board co-chairs. Uh, there'll be substantial people from the arts and humanities, uh, and uh, it, it exists to support the work that the, the, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, already do with, uh, w with cultural organizations around the country. And it will highlight the, the work that we do, things, uh, things like the National Student Poets, um, uh, Saving America's Treasures, lots of things that are probably important as we move into the 250th anniversary of the Declaration, about which there is also a commission. Uh, and, and supporting literacy, cultural literacy, basic reading literacy, uh, supporting uh, the, the, the activities that uh, artists and uh, teachers and museums and libraries engage in every day. This committee is purely advisory, though. So will it really be able to accomplish anything? Or is it, you know, to show that the administration cares about arts and humanities? I, you know, I think its, its greatest charge is promotion, is promotion of the arts and humanities. Um, it really will depend on the, the NEA, the NEH, and the IMLS to, to do the work and, and, and to make sure that it matters. And I, I, having been doing this for, for two and a half years, but as a, as a librarian and as a civic leader, having done this my entire adult lifetime, I can tell you it's the most important thing we can do in, in this country right now, the cultural vitality, which is dependent on the civic trust that the arts and humanities have at the local level in this country. That's the kind of thing that we support. You know, the national conversation is a very polarized conversation right now. But if you look at the conversations that we're having locally, the, the conversations in cities and towns uh, uh, around the, the country, that's the place where we lower the heat and raise the light uh, uh, around, around things like the arts and humanities, which can bring us together. You mentioned the local libraries. So what is your interaction with those local libraries, your organization's interaction, and, and how do you support them? Because they are supported by their local communities. Right. So what, what the IMLS does is uh, we, we make grants, and we make grants around technology and professional development, but we focus on things like crossing the digital divide, making sure that everybody has access to, not just access to, but know how to use the internet to better their lives. Um, a lot of what we do is is built around partnerships at the local in the local community libraries and museums. This particularly happened during the pandemic. Uh, libraries and museums working with their local health authorities, working with their local social justice organizations, their local neighborhood organizations, uh, their local uh, school districts or, or or universities, community colleges, etc. Uh, and building a coalition around literacy, building a coalition uh, uh, around the arts. Uh, and, and, and that, it, during the pandemic, that's been a huge thing. It, and, it's, and it's helped us cross the divides uh, in this country, be more intentional about who we're helping, uh, and, and lifting the spirits. Tell us about uh, how large your organization is and what's the budget. We are a micro agency. Um, uh, we have, uh, we're the, the IMLS is the largest cultural agency in part because we have a great program called the Grants to States where we fund state libraries 
funding local libraries. Uh, and uh, we have 70 employees at the, at the moment, the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities and the Information Literacy Task Force, which Congress has asked us to do, um, will expand us a little bit, uh, we hope. We're always, as everyone in Washington, we're always waiting to see what happens with the budget. And you're, you're about halfway through your four-year term. How's it been going so far? So, uh, you know, they gave me a pandemic uh, at the beginning of my term, so that's been fascinating. And we've done a lot with that at the IMLS, our uh, reopening libraries, museums, and, uh, and archives uh, project, the Realm project. We did serious research that, uh, that helped uh, libraries and museums reopen. Um, the, our work on reading and literacy, I think, has been very important and will continue to be important. The best practices for libraries and, and, and museums at the local level. Uh, and then this, the excitement of the President's Committee, reestablishing that, I think, that, and that, that we will, it will report to us and, and we'll be working in partnership with the NEA and the NEH on, on that, exciting the Information Literacy Task Force and America 250. It's a full plate. Um, on the other hand, it's important to the country and libraries and museums are the place where we have the highest level of civic trust in this country. And, we, and it's, it's our role today to use that civic trust to, to make this a, a better and more unified country, to bring people together. Crosby, I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Me, thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for the email list on our homepage. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.